Toto. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. I love the smell of my pump in the morning. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. You talking to me? You talking to me? Go ahead. Make my day. He's looking at you, kid. They're called boobs, Ed. Wilson! Welcome to the VPF Talks podcast, episode number 48. I'm your host, Steve Troutman, and this episode is brought to you by our sponsor, ScreenCraft. ScreenCraft is one of the industry's top programs for discovering emerging screenwriters. It has script contests where many of the winners get signed with literary reps and receive all sorts of other notice. In this episode, I talk with screenwriter Alan Horsnell about his upcoming film, Midnight in the Switchgrass, as well as his journey from youth soccer player to professional screenwriter. And now, here's my conversation with Alan. And I'm here with Alan Horsnell, um, screenwriter, uh, youth soccer player, and uh, <laughs> executive at a, at a tech company, formerly at a tech company. Alan, welcome. Yeah, uh, thank you for having me, Steve. That didn't sound so bad. Like George Costanza would say, if you take everything I've accomplished in my life and you summed it up in one sentence, it looks decent. So (laughs) good deal yeah you've you've made a you've made a splash and and you have uh some stuff going on right now movie getting set to come out we'll talk about that uh coming up but let's go back a little further where did you how did you get started in writing and movies or um you know where did where did that bug bite you yeah i mean it was like a lot of people i think that at the movie theater um, and the experience with things like Raiders of the Lost Ark and um, some of those um, just adventurous um, escape <laughs> escapism as a young uh, person to just lose yourself in these stories. And um, I, I found myself very drawn to storytelling. And my dad was a big storyteller. Uh, my parents immigrated from England. And he, uh, you know, was a big, boisterous, you know, pub speaker kind of guy. And he would tell stories of his travels all over the world. And um, I think I caught a little bit of the storytelling bug from him. But it was really an imagination um, that was sparked by what was possible, what I saw as a young a young man in movies. And I just loved the energy about it. and. Um, that you had a captive audience. There is definitely something to be said for being around expertise, even if it's, you know, your father was just a natural rock on tour, it sounds like, but, you know, we, and we were talking about soccer earlier and how um, Claudio Reyna and his son came up and how you hang around that world. You pick up what the, the values are as well as just some of the basic skills. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it goes to, you know, you, from a storytelling standpoint, you hear how things are framed and something that we could probably jump into a little bit later. You, I, I think pacing is very important to storytelling mm. and, and, and you get that from how people speak and how people tell stories orally. And, you know, in order to not lose your audience, <laughs> whatever that may be, you need to keep a certain rhythm and a certain pacing to how you tell stories. So I, I, I think at a younger age, um, I, I, I understood that there was kind of a, an art and a craft to it. Um, but I didn't understand quite how difficult it was to, <laughs> to bring it all together. 
Yeah, it's well, also, you know, when it's your parent, sometimes you're hearing those stories and you hear them multiple times and you get, oh, he left out the part about, you know, the, the, the taxi ride. I wonder why he did that. Yeah. Or maybe or maybe it's he should have put in the taxi ride. That's that was my favorite part. Yeah. So hearing hearing that and then I think of someone like Sofia Coppola, who, you know, grew yeah. up with, you know, her father, who, you know, great filmmaker. And you just grow up in that world and then you have the the benefit of going, Hey dad, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? Yeah. No. And, and at the same time, you know, as much as I, I fell in love with it and I wanted to be a filmmaker from a very young age, um, it never seemed realistic growing up in Colorado. Um, it, it was, there wasn't a lot of film school programs that as I, as I got older and, and started to look around and it just seemed like a like a hobby. Either you go and you make your own home movies, um, and hopefully that goes somewhere. Uh, if you're Robert Rodriguez or, or some of those guys like that, right. they can they can turn into something. Um, otherwise, it's it's just a fantasy. It's something that you daydream about. And I was kind of stuck in that daydream mode, but I couldn't help not wanting to change stories as I saw them come out in movies <laughs> or shows. And um, I think you and I had talked in the past that, you know, it was really when when Twin Peaks came out, uh, the first two seasons of Twin Peaks, it really, um, it really opened my eyes to what you can do, and that you can be um, as creative as you want to be. Yeah, it, that really create that really kind of broke the mold in terms of certainly hour length television and the the episodic nature of television as it was at that time. And then here's this, you know, this long serialized story which is so weird, and it didn't spoon feed the audience everything all at once. Yeah, I mean, I still remember seeing the Time Magazine cover that had David Lynch on it, and that's the impact that it was making and i think people were able to recognize what a change it was invoking because it's you know i think the title was inside the mind of david lynch and that was like 1990 and so um it's just those those are the things that stick out that inspired me um in silence of the lambs and 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 some of those kind of crime thrillers that i that I, i found myself drawn to it was just uh I think kicked off right back around with, with Twin Peaks as best as I can figure it out. Right. So you're, you're in Colorado and uh, you're looking at, well, I'd like to do movies, but I'm much more likely to end up being a a calf roper in the rodeo circuit than (laughs) doing that. What did, what did your dad do? What did your parents do? So my father was a, uh, he got his PhD in geochemistry the University of London, and he was a geologist, and he specialized in gold mines. And oh, nice. so after he f- was finished with school, uh, he, he married my mother, who had a very interesting degree in zoology, and but she was a writer. And she ended up using her degree in zoology to write a newsletter for the Natural History Museum in, in Denver. And nice. so it was, it was, I, I kind of grew up watching her work the typewriter and the, you know, the whiteout and all that stuff. But <laughs> I, my kids would look at me with their jaw open if I told them what you had to do. Um, but so my father was um, hired 
by a company out of Vancouver. My sister was born in Vancouver. That company promoted him and transferred him to their headquarters, which was on the western slope of Colorado, just outside Denver. And that's where we that's where we settled. And he traveled the world um, inspecting sites for potential gold mines, uh, going into gold mines everywhere from Vietnam to Winnemucca, Nevada to all over the place. <laughs> so he, he had a lot of tall tales and, um, and he loved it. He wanted to be Indiana Jones. Um, I, I think that, uh, <laughs> that was stuck. He wanted to be a, a jack of all trades, master of none. But, uh, and so that was kind of my exposure and being that they were, um, English, I think that my dad had, it, it, he, he had a real love for soccer and cricket. Um, cricket was not going to happen in the States in the eighties by any stretch. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's going to, it's not even happening now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think, you know, he was very good not to push me, but I think it was encouraged that I give soccer a shot and it kind of took off and, and not to make it sound like it was either or, but I, I didn't really excel that well in school. I did okay. And I, I kind of found, not that I'm making an excuse for it, but um, I found myself kind of daydreaming a lot and, and I and feeling like I wasn't really connecting with some of the standard curriculum. So um, I think I got lumped into the sports bucket <laughs> at a certain age. And it was like my sister was extraordinary at school. She's a, you know, a world-class um, partner of world's one of the world's largest law firms and just super, super smart and, and always did really well in school. And then there was me and they're like, Oh, well, we got a dud here, but um, he <laughs> the was, world needs ditch diggers too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we're going to, we'll see what, see what other skills he might have. And, um, and I took to soccer and I really enjoyed it. And I was, I was a fast, fast kid and I ran track and soccer and um, I played up front and sometimes scored a lot of goals, sometimes went through <laughs> struggles. But um, yeah, and I ended up playing at, you know, throughout Colorado's levels and then traveling around the country playing and, and even made a trip over to Europe to play um, in Germany for a while. And Very cool. experienced that sport at a much different level. <laughs> degree and um, really eye-opening and it was it was it was a wonderful experience but then after you know I, I I think there was an outside shot I think in my dad's mind that I might end up somewhere um, potentially catching on in Europe to see if I could be you know developed further into you know a pro and, and we, we kept my, my dual citizenship alive so that it would be easier for me to get a work visa. Uh, <laughs> That's convenient. Yeah, that might be a little bit of wishful thinking. But um, but then there came a point where I I had to go to school. I was I, Soccer was done, and I've got these mediocre grades, and it was like sports, <laughs> sports had not uh, panned out into a career, which it rarely does. And, um, and so I went to college at Colorado State and um, focused on speech communications and English and and writing. And I, I came out to California um, in, in the hopes of 
weaseling my way into film school and it just never really happened. And <laughs> I, I, I think I got discouraged a little bit. Um, I think I, I set my sights a little bit too high with what I, what I had <laughs> from a grade standpoint, but I thought maybe there's a way that I can showcase some of my talent, some other ways, but I was, I was obsessed with, with filmmaking and I just didn't know how to do it. And, um, and then, you know, I'm of the age where the dot-com world was exploding and everybody was hiring like mad and a friend of a friend got me uh, hooked in with Oracle that was, you know, expanding rapidly. I think I was employee number 25,000. And when I left, I was like, there was over 300 thousand employees around the globe and so it was it was just blowing up and i and so i i jumped into this you know you can make money sales role ended up you know doing pretty well at that and and becoming a regional manager and you know looking over you know large territories and large sums of money and and then you know that's that's great now and it's fun to you know say at a cocktail party oh you know i work for a software company oh that's interesting you know and but that's about all it really was. Right. And, and I woke up one day and I was like, this is not, I'm not happy with this. And and I think everybody might at some point have that conversation. And, and my wife is, is incredible and she's achieved, she runs a mortgage business and she's, she's achieved so much in her life. And she's very much a, um, you know, a, a, a true believer in setting your goals high. And so she was the first person in my life to really say, oh, you're, you're definitely talented enough to do this. You just need to do it. So then that kind of started me off down the path of, okay, well, as I think I might have mentioned to you before, screenwriting was probably the only bullet I had in my gun to shoot my way into <laughs> the industry. So um, I, I, I started working on it myself. And what, what was that like? What, how did you, I mean, did you study yourself? Did you read a bunch of play or screenplays or? Um... Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 I'd studied some playwriting in college, uh, which I really loved, really loved, um, plays, um, dramas, the fact that it's, you know, it's the plot is driven through dialogue and driven through character. And so I, um, you know, there's the screenwriting books that are as thick as encyclopedias that will walk you through blow by blow. But thank goodness I'm also of the of the age where Final Draft was was out and and had the the, the template and the structure to kind of push you a little bit idiot proof, I think, at a time to kind of push you into um, you know the proper position. And yeah. I just I, I just rolled the dice and started trying to to write stories and um, and I, it was features that I, I first started trying to plow through and um, and that and that was a good way to kind of of learn trial by fire and it, it was great because there was these these contests that you could enter um, just the beginning of these contests where you could get a little bit of feedback. And so it was neat to be able to finish something and know that I was forcing another human being to read it. 
um, was always <laughs> was always exciting to me to know. Well, at least somebody's going to read it. Um, but and then I and then I hooked up with a coach that changed everything. Oh well, uh, let's let's get back to the coach. But before that, you were reading plays when you were in when you were in college. Um, yeah, is what I'm hearing. So that's a great just to get the flow of oh okay so this is I'm telling or I'm I'm reading a story that's supposed to take place in hour and a half to three hours, um, yeah if you're reading Shakespeare, um, yeah. and and like you're saying it's it's propelled by dot by dialogue primarily and and yeah. some big overarching actions but you know it's uh it's it's a different thing and I think that you know certainly helps and then reading reading screenplays. Um, is, Absolutely. is also helpful. Yeah. So, and, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to ask, what were you, what were you reading to help you? Were you reading screenplays? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, um, you know, I was reading, I, I love David Mamet as a, as a playwright. Um, and, and he had some films and, and so I kind of, it was nice to be able to carry over, um, and re see how he wrote plays and then see how he wrote screenplays um and you know i think a, a script that really stuck out to me that i read and it was also i believe and and the gentleman's name escapes me right now um he's having a tremendous amount of success though um was prisoners and i knew that it was his first offering i believe um and that it had made its way to Mark Wahlberg and, and his group. And then it ultimately, um, you know, made its way to Denis Villanueva and, and, and Gyllenhaal and all those guys. But it was, um, it was a script that, you know, a lot of people considered it a, a great in that suspense, thriller, crime area. But I think what I loved the most about it was that it was early in his writing career. Um, and it was, it, it, it was possible to put something together that could move the needle, you know, without the benefit of, of all these other things that you would need to come flowing through film school. And again, I, I don't know if that gentleman went to film school or not, but, um, it was, I, it was an inspiring, what, whatever story I was telling myself about how that script was created, it was inspiring to me. And so, um, kind of Aaron, uh, Aaron Guzikowski. Yes. Name. I and, just yes. Yes. Up. Yeah. And Aaron's, um, doing raised by wolves right now with, oh. um, yeah. And, uh, and it's been renewed for, um, another season and it's received a, a ton of critical acclaim. So he is, um, he's done well for himself. So yeah. And, and, and then some of the other standard, um, you know, traditional scripts I read, you know, um, you know, I remember reading, um, Sixth Sense, which a lot of people consider a very, very, very well-crafted script. Um, yeah. you know, Science of the Lambs, um, the, the, um, Days Gone By pilot of The Walking Dead is a, is a, is it was a tremendous read and uh, to see how you can pull people into this world. Um, you're very dark for a Colorado cowboy. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's, I, I don't know. I, you know, they say, they say fear is the strongest emotion. And I think it, 
for me, it is born out of my own fears of, of, you know, (laughs) dangers of, of the world. And I think that it's a way that I maybe, um, metabolize it (laughs) through, um, you know, telling these stories myself, because the stories that I write are never scary to me, but you know, you hear people talking about the midnight and the switchgrass, you know, that they filmed and they're like, well, some of these scenes are incredibly, incredibly dark the way that they're turning out. And I never thought of it that way. And so it's, that is one of the unique, not, not that I didn't think that there's no other way to have the scene not be dark. But when I was writing it and every time that I went through it, it was always just character pacing dialogue. Okay. What makes sense for this to happen? And then this character does this. And I think you lose yourself a little bit in the, the gravity of, of what's going on. And, um, and so to hear that, I mean, it's, 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 it's fun and it's exhilarating, but it's also nerve wracking knowing that I, I know a lot of people that are going to want to watch this movie just because they know me that are not cut out for that type of material. <laughs> so, so we'll see, we'll see, but um, maybe I can send out some sort of blanket. Um, yeah. Warning before <laughs> people get into it because it is i mean it's it's very silence of the lambs esque i mean it's it, that's a that's a one of the best movies in the history of right. cinema so now, did you start out did you what did you start out writing did you did you finish the first thing you started did you I did. okay yeah, and was I that it, was that it, midnight no 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 it was a <laughs> i wish uh it was a western um and it was about a, a true story about this railroad war that broke out in like 1880 in, in Southern Colorado. And it was, I just became obsessed with the story and it included all the, those, the standard folklore, you know, Doc Holliday and Bat Masterson <laughs> and, and, and they, they were hired by this big, big Santa Fe um, railroad company to, to push out the little local, you know, Denver Rio Grand Railroad. And it was a race for through the Royal Gorge to see who can put the first narrow gauge track to um, Silverthorne. And um, I think that's what it was called. I th- well, Silver that sounds Thorn. very so, cheap to yeah. shoot. And it's a very popular <laughs> genre. What were you yeah. thinking? So I've got, I've got these wars breaking out. I've got gunfights. I've got railroads. I've got period. I've got Western. I just didn't know. I didn't know that the, 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 the market is microscopic for something like that. And I mean, ultimately it was always going to be kind of more of a sample than anything else, but I got it done. Um, and I did revise it once and I sent it to the page awards and, and some of these, you know, these contests that film festivals had, I tried to get it out there a little bit and I got some decent feedback on it. I, I really did. And it, it enough that it inspired me to keep going. And that is probably the, the nutshell of my, you know, emerging career was there was always just enough positive reinforcement to get me to the next thing. Right. <laughs> well, that's I, good. You're not getting zeros across the board on your <laughs> on your evaluations. So yeah, well, and oh, we we could go into that, but um, 
yeah, it's it was it, it was just kind of naive, not being very experienced with the industry, and just saying I'm gonna I'm gonna write something that I find interesting, and then you know, and one of the biggest problems that I made early on that I see that I see emerging writers make is is overcomplicating the stories that they want to tell as they're trying to um you know s- discover their kind of tone and their voice and and telling too complicated of stories and and I I'm still battling that and especially with crime thrillers and trying to simplify it and letting your uniqueness shine through and not burying it in in plot twists and and all these these crazy things but I won't go off on a tangent. <laughs> well, it sounds like you picked a good story to start with. It was something you were passionate about, and you certainly knew the area, and and uh, you you did yeah. well enough with that. And then, uh, what 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 was the first thing that really got you noticed? Well, I would say there was a uh, that's it depends on my 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 interpretation of what noticed is, is different then than it is now. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think there was a, there was a pilot that I wrote that was in the crime thriller kind of genre of a forensic, a forensic accountant with the FBI being all of a sudden thrust out of the office and into the field to investigate, you know, a series of murders in her, her, her old rural hometown. So it, it was very much something that I took the idiosyncrasies of Twin Peaks and tried to um, and build some kind of small town feel similar to that, the kind of the, the great vibe of where the teenagers are way ahead of the adults and, you know, just kind of a lot going on. Um, and, and, and the response was good. The response was, you know, it opened some doors. Um, I, I was able to have some great conversations with, with some, you know, representatives and some executives. And it really just came down to the fact that it's a difficult, difficult thing for an emerging writer to do is, um, is to write a, you know, write a pilot and then somebody has got to convince a showrunner to want to make this over the list of the other projects that are their own or that they've already gotten the queue and it, it, various other reasons. I was an older guy too at that point and, and I wasn't going to get staffed on a show. I kept getting told. So I kind of thought I hit a dead end though. <laughs> so with your question being, where did you start to get some traction? The thing that I got traction with also seemed to be like the biggest dead end that I had hit, if that makes sense. Is this where the the uh, coach came in? The coach was was working, helping me build these pilots, um, and and I was kind of on my own to make connections, and that's where I really started to utilize some of these online tools, like Virtual Pitch Fest, where you can get very succinct ideas out to a lot of people. And they are um, obligated <laughs> to address them. <laughs> and just like I said, that, that's one of the biggest challenges an emerging writer has is to, to force people to read their stuff. And um, as part of the genius of Virtual Pitch Fest, too, is that, that, that nobody else does is, is, is 
forcing people to get back to you. And that's, that's right. all right. That's all writers want. They give us a no, uh, you know, just don't let something go out into the ether and just hang there. We'd right. much rather have somebody get back to us in two days and say, absolutely not. And never contact me again. At least we could check them off the list and say, okay, moving on. Right. So, yeah. It's not like a pocket veto where, all right, well, I'm just not going to do anything with this. So it's dead. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's great. Was, uh, had so, you been using virtual pitch fest for a while or was midnight in the switchgrass your first foray into that? I had used virtual pitch fest for, um, a few of my pilots. I, I would have to go back and look to see exactly when and, and, and which ones, but I remember the experience being, um, unique and being able to make connections with people. And I did, I, I was able to cultivate some of those connections into what else do you have kind of outside of the framework of virtual pitch fest. Okay. Send me this pilot. I sent it to them and they got back to me and said, this is really well-written. I'm not sure I'm the right person for this. What else are you interested in or what else? And then, you know, you can build your own and that's, probably one of the most valuable and at the same time one of the most difficult things to do on your own is to spark those conversations based on work that um someone has already seen of yours right and <laughs> you and know? either start creating or expanding your network of of contacts in the business yeah and and again and and, and what's amazing about it which i would tell people now is that it's a great place to start if you can believe that um, a one page pitch doc before you write a story is, is a good thing to take a stab at because you'll find out real quick if your story is interesting or not. And that's, I've written a lot of scripts where I get almost to the end and I'm like, oh man, this just isn't quite got the bite that I thought it was going to have. And then you sit there and you stare at the blank page of trying to write a one page pitch document or a query and you're like, how in the heck am I going to make this exciting? And, um, and I, I, I think that, you know, keeping something like virtual pitch fest in mind and saying, all right, well, here's my end goal is this one page that I need people to be compelled to request the script. And then you kind of reverse engineer it a little bit. And, and maybe people do that already when in their outlining process or something, but it really opened my eyes to this. It's something that you want to have in the forefront of your mind when you're getting started on a project instead of, you know, I think writers are struggle with, with summaries. And right. I think it's one of our, our biggest problems is, is we're so detail oriented when it comes to stories that when you're like, well, we'll summarize it for me. And it always sounds terrible right off the top of your head. And you're like, well, wait, 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 hold on. <laughs> but then also one of those first questions you get when you go into a meeting about a, about a script is, or, or a pitch is, oh, where, what's the ending? Right. You know, how does, how does this end? What's the emotional impact? What is the audience supposed to be feeling? Yeah. And I do believe that if, if you don't know the end, you don't know the beginning or whatever those, those sayings are. Um, and, and I, and I, and it's again, something to think about that you can, you know, really work through when you're trying to summarize, if you were an executive, how would you like this project brought to you where you were like, not only am I requesting it, you know, 
I'm going to read this thing over the weekend. And that's, I think, when you know that you've got a good query is when people are requesting something and they're getting back to you relatively quickly saying, hey, this was great. Not for me, but uh, I really liked it. You know, let me know when you when you do something else. Right. Well, and that's the other great thing that I like about Virtual Pitch Fest is that you uh, sound that sounds like we're doing a commercial. Here, I know. <laughs> but um, is that is that you get to target who you send your query to? It's not just putting it up on a website and hoping that someone, hoping the perfect producer sees it, you yeah. know, or the perfect manager or whatever. You can, you're not going to target, you know, if you have a, a, you know, stories like you tell, you're not going to target uh, shows that do kids animation. Or, right. You know, you're not going to go to go to those production companies. Yeah. You know, that would Christmas be a waste stories. of everybody's time. Right. Right. Yeah. No. And it's, it's interactive, I think. And so it's, uh, it, it is, it makes you feel like you're doing something instead of just throwing it out there, you know, contest, you'll send a script to a contest. And then six months later, you find out that you got booted and you're like, Oh, well, yeah, <laughs> that, right. that, that was a long six months. But I guess some, three of those three of those volunteer readers didn't like my script. Yeah, and I think that the I think that when you're you're combing through executives and representatives and and you're developing your own kind of marketing strategy and plan, it it really um, it really makes you feel like you're you're doing some of that work because we're not always ready to finish a script and jump right into the next one. Sometimes we want to do a little bit of our own marketing and our own kind of post-production work on the script. And I think that's what I really, really enjoyed was being able to, and I, and it, it may sound like BS, but I, I, I'm being serious. It's, it, it's interactive. So it made me feel like I was working and more of a professional than just like blasting it out to, you know, whoever. And I did a bunch of, I've done a ton of blind queries and I've had, very, very minimal success, maybe one or two that have turned into to any sort of relationship from that. Um, and so I targeted, it's, it, it really is probably the best tool that I've ever used to, to get. And, and I mean, I've, I've got, I've got a great, great example of how it can work. Yeah. So let's, let's get into uh, a script that did work. Um, <laughs> tell us, tell me about um, the development or the idea, uh, everything soup to nuts with Midnight and Switchgrass. Yeah. You know, I was, I had an idea for, uh, I, I kind of got to that point where, um, people were, were pushing me back towards features, um, saying that, you know, TV is going to be too hard for you. It's, it's, the doors are not going to open for you. Um, you, if these pilots were features, maybe you could, you could, you know, have something. And so I went back to a few of my older ideas and there was a movie that I wanted to write that ended up um, being very, would have been very similar to the Joaquin Phoenix. Um, oh yeah. I was never really here or you were never really here there. <laughs> I, can't I was getting mixed up on that title, but, but the, uh, that movie from a few years ago and I, there, it reminded me of an article that I had read that I was inspired when I wanted to write that other idea. And I went back and I looked at that article and it was a press release from the, the FBI from 2009. And it was about a program that they were announcing that they had been working on since 2004, but they kept it secret for five years because they wanted to, they wanted to investigate 
everything that they were finding out. And it was called the Highway Serial Killing Initiative. And it was basically that, um, you know, there was, they, they were finding out that there was a huge amount of unsolved murders along U.S. major highway systems. And they were Jane Doe's, uh, mo- mostly, mostly women. And they were, you know, I kind of came up with the phrase of if, um, if no one's looking for you, you're not really missing. And so you had these people that nobody were, was looking for. And you had this breakdown in the, um, you know, the American um, law enforcement communication process where if you had, you know, if a crime didn't commit all and happen all in the right in one place, you know, things got spread out and jurisdictions got, weren't speaking with each other. And you, you ended up having, I think the FBI said like a thousand of these cold cases. And at Jeez. the same time, they had 450 suspects all, you know, long haul truck drivers. And so I was like, that is, that is incredible. And, and that, that initiative, even more fascinating was that initiative came from one person and she was a, um, an analyst for the Oklahoma Bureau of Investigation. And she had seven of these cold cases along the I-40 corridor there with Texas and Oklahoma, and I think uh, into Arkansas. And um, that she started to put all of the trace evidence data into you know, the equivalent of an Excel spreadsheet that was relatively, you know, new, <laughs> new technology at the time. And it was able to tell her what the similarities were. And they didn't even realize that they had DNA matches for like four of the seven of them. So she said, these are all connected. Um, and these are what we would be looking for. And they kicked it up to the FBI and said, what do you think about this? And they said, this is, this is impressive. And they started making changes to their, their VICAP violent, violent crime database based on it which was voluntary, that people submit information to the national database voluntarily. Um, And so there was a major breakdown from that. There was just no communication. So Midnight in the Switchgrass as a story kind of became my own fictionalized origin story of that program. Even though the program itself is not referenced, the time period and the idea um, of someone being frustrated with the fact that these there was there was crimes that people weren't caring about so to speak wow yeah and that's um that's just amazing that the i mean and if you think about it your typical um uh police work is you you find a dead body and you go okay who knew this person well if it's a jane doe you don't know all right well who was around well who knows you know dumped on the side of the highway yeah. And you, you have these, these, and again, I'm not trying to vilify truckers by any stretch of the imagination, but, <laughs> but the, you have, you have a mobile crime scene and not to get into too much detail, but right. you know, but you would have a crime commit in one state and then you have a, a weapon in another, and then you've got, you know, the end result in, in a third and they're not speaking with each other. So one becomes a kidnapping, one becomes just, you know, a, uh, a Jane Doe and, and they're never, they're never all connected. Um, and to me, what was, what I really dug into was the idea that these people were expendable or they were not important. And that, that because they didn't have 
parents standing on a front lawn in front of a, a white picket fence saying, has anybody seen my daughter, that they somehow weren't as important. And it, it really it really also illuminated the, the squeaky wheel gets the oil kind of aspect of law enforcement too, where you have to keep, you know, people do need to keep pushing to keep these cases alive. And um, that's just because there's so many. That's nothing against law enforcement. It's just, it's easy for things to get get shelved due to due to the the volume and um and and so it was it was the fact that they're they literally call them the invisible people and and it was you know these these people down on their luck and they're they've fallen into you know the trappings of you know drugs and and um you know prostitution and and things like that and and they're in probably the most dangerous positions that you can put yourself in, in, in this country. <laughs> and oh, um, yeah. yeah. And so I, I wanted to draw some attention to that. And I think that the movie does, I think it, it humanizes and tells the story of, of these people, I think to a certain degree. And, um, and, and, and we'll see, we'll see, hopefully that, that comes through, but it was, it was very rewarding to have people, um, very well-respected people in the industry once the movie was going into production and people were taking a look at it and giving their advice to the producers and the director um, that they were, they were getting some of the subtleties and, and the deeper meanings that, that I had put into the script where um, I think it got passed off as, you know, uh, on the surface as well, this is just another, you know, another crime story that's going to have some violence in it. That's going to just, you know, not do anything to to move a conversation forward. So I'm hoping that uh, that it, it, it turns out to be something that is a little empowering. That's very cool. So you've, I mean, you 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 were honing your skills up to this point, and you you come across this idea, and uh, you do a, a bit of research, and you you write it, and then you use virtual pitch fest to get this out to people or yeah i did and i um i i wrote a draft and i had a few people take a look at it that i really trust their opinion um and i've got so what can be a somewhat controversial opinion at times that writers i don't think are always the best to give other writers notes on their projects I, <laughs> and i'm lucky enough to have a few you know development executive friends and manager friends that um, can look at it from more of a business standpoint and more of their type of a development eye. Um, and so I got some good feedback and it, it, it all lined up. It, there was too many characters. And so I did one really good overhaul rewrite. I probably rewrote about half of it and removed a character and then built up the other ones. And, um, and, and a few people read it after that and they said, this is really good. And then I kind of went out, so to speak, with it with being my own, <laughs> my own representative and me going out and going to, you know, virtual pitch fest. But, you know, I, I could reference that, that, that FBI article and some of the quotes were just unbelievable. It was like the FBI has determined that if you want to be a serial killer, being a long haul truck driver is an excellent career choice. I mean, it was there in the article. So <laughs> you load a, a query letter or a pitch document with some of these FBI quotes, and then you just kind of set it up, uh, you know, the right way. And I think that that was the secret was having a great, as I touched on earlier, having a great one page 
that people look at and they're like, you know, you know, this isn't what I do, but I got, I want to take a look at this. And, and that can open some doors. And, and that's the toughest reality of the business is you can get doors open and occasionally, and, and they're only going to open once per person usually, but you can get them open. And then where is the material um, when you step through that door? Is it something that's going to back up? I, I don't know if scripts are always as good as their one pages and then people are, you know, let down. And so I think you have to, you have to have the material in as good enough shape to, um, to, to, to make an impact when those doors open. So I think a cautionary tale would be don't just run out on virtual pitch fest with, with kind of half baked stuff, trying to throw spaghetti against the wall, because you'll get a lot of, you, you can get some people requesting your material and then they won't read you again. If it's, if it's not of, you know, professional caliber. Um, so yeah, I went, I <laughs> digress a little bit, but I, I, I got a great response on virtual pitch fest and it became pretty much my main, um, my main focus of, uh, what to, of, of how I was getting the material out there. And I think for one month I, I had the most downloads or the most read downloads, the most requests for the material. And I thought, okay, great. So, something's good. Something's good's going to come out of this. And I, I, you know, I, I sent thank you notes and I followed up with the people that were requesting it. A few managers got back to me, some pretty notable managers, um, you know, got back to me and said, this is great. Um, I don't know if I can do anything with it, but please, you know, reach out to me with other material. And so we kind of was able to cross that threshold. Um, and then I did have a few producers uh, read it and say, can we have a meeting? I would like to explore maybe trying to do something with this. And so I flew out to LA and I had um, a few meetings with a few different producers and they were all great and very positive. And I really connected with one of them and you know, he, he's, he's a great guy. And, um, we, we kind of discussed the fact that, you know, some options of how we could get this thing off the ground potentially and start getting more industry, uh, interest. And so I was going to Europe on a vacation. I just had that meeting. I was, I was feeling so good. Um, we went to a, a cousin's wedding, European family in, in, nice. in France. And, um, and then I got this email from, uh, you know, Tim Sullivan over at EFO and he had requested the script in May and it was, you know, end of July. And, and he was just, it was very simple. He just said, we're interested in optioning this script. Do you have a manager or agent that I could get in contact with? And I, I looked at it and it was like, wow, that's, that's very direct and, and to the point. And, um, and, you know, long story short, they, they were excited about it and they actually got me on the phone with them from Europe and they told me their plan for it and it was exciting and that they planned to go into production within 12 months and it was something their entire company had agreed upon. They had read it out loud and they're ready to go. And I just wow. was like, wow, this is amazing. But at the same time, I was kind of cursing that I had made this great connection with this producer and him and I had talked about, you know, the plans that we could make for it. And so I was, I was really, believe it or not, uh, <laughs> I was hesitant at first to, to, cause I didn't want to start burning bridges right away as I would just, you know, and, and 
I had really appreciated his name is Eric, what Eric had done. So I, I had called Eric and I said, Hey, I got some kind of bad news. This is what's happened. And Eric said, first off, I really appreciate you calling me. Second of all, you got to do it, man. He's like, I'm not going to stand <laughs> in the way of this thing. Man. He's like, I love your writing. I hope that, you know, you and I can, can work together in the future, but yeah, dude, go get this, get this, this script made. I love the script. And just to fast forward from that now, Eric and I have a tremendous project that we are going out with in January with a whole team of support behind us that we believe is going to be a success. So that is another virtual business success story from the same script. But it was it was tremendous uh, that it was able to work out that way. And so we moved pretty quick with EFO, um, got an option agreement together, and they started planning. And And they are a well-oiled machine when it comes to um, getting these things going and getting them going quickly. And the very first meeting I had with them is they said, you know, we're kind of going in a different direction. The bad guy in the movie, we're making a substantial offer to this A-list actor. And I was just sitting there saying, is this really, is the, can this really be happening right now? That this is, <laughs> this is, this is what's going to, you know, I just went from, you know, sitting in my office trying to beg people to have a call with me to now they're making offers. And then they're telling you about this, this, this A-list actors read the script. They love it. Their, their, their reps have read it. They love it. You know, this and that. And you're like, wow. And that wasn't, that wasn't Bruce Willis, but it was still, it was something <laughs> that was like, it, it, it kind of everything hit me at once then and and then and then you're hoping that you don't wake up in a in a in a hospital room in paris having bumped your head at the reception for the wedding you went to and it was all a dream yes missing a kidney in a bathroom (laughs) no and and i was i it's my nature is i was waiting for the other shoe to drop for, for quite some time. And, and it's, it's crazy because the EFO was, was wonderful and um, they really welcomed me in and allowed me to be a part of the whole pre-production and development stages. And I got the opportunity to see how complex it is to put the financing together for these projects oh, to yeah. coordinate how the production team on the ground, everything that they have to go through to, to get ready to, um, try to pull this thing off. And then, you know, as a writer, you're saying, oh, well, they want me to cut it down. But then you really learn that they want you to cut it down because there's X number of scenes that we physically are able to shoot. <laughs> and, and there's right. only so much money here and there. And, um, and so it's just, it was a great experience. And then, you know, March, they invited me down to Puerto Rico to start it. And, and I got down there and it was a dream come true. They, asked me to lead a table read and, and, and Megan Fox, Emil Hirsch, um, you know, Lucas Haas, Caitlin Carmichael, which is an incredible young actress. She's, she's 16. She's a sophomore at UCLA. She's like a prodigy and a brilliant actress. And she plays a very difficult role in the movie and she killed it. Um, Sistine Stallone, uh, one, one of Sly's daughters, and she was an amazing and a, and a wonderful young woman. And, and just to to all of a sudden get to read this script or read the stage directions and and, and hear these actors start to do the uh, you know read the dialogue and I was it was probably the most nerve wracking thing I've ever done in my entire life and and but it was it was it was nuts it was nuts like Emil Emil Hirsch was 
he wasn't even looking at the script. You know, he was he he knew his lines and he was oh, shit. Doing, he was doing an accent and, and Lucas was doing the same and and they were really getting into it and it was it was so wonderful and 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 those guys just they they you you'll notice when you see this movie that Emil and Lucas jumped in and that's nothing against any all the performances were great, but they really they 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 became these characters and they really jumped in and Lucas has got a very difficult role too. And and, and that so was it, a table read. And that was a table read. And that was, you know, afterwards I've got, you know, Lucas saying, Hey, let's let's talk about these two lines of dialogue. What if you think and and you know, and Emil and I are, you know, are are hanging out and, and playing blackjack later that day. And you know, and it was like, <laughs> this is when the something's something's gotta drop. And it did. It was it was called COVID. <laughs> and, oh man. And, and, it, and about five days into shooting, um, you know, and and I will say because I mean I think writers that listen to this will get a kick out of this. I did get to see the very first scene shot, and I was in the video village, and it's the great thing about it is it's kind of a a, a dialogue heavy scene, and it's a it's a a meeting between Megan Fox's character and Emil Hirsch's character, and they're both kind of explaining where they're coming from on this situation, and. Emil's got almost like a monologue. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know how this is going to work. And I didn't really think about this when I was writing it. And he just killed it. And multiple times <laughs> in different ways, he just killed it. And to see that being the first scene shot was so satisfying. Um, you know, and and I saw these great scenes between Megan Fox and her, her now um, boyfriend, Machine Gun Kelly. Very intense, very, very complex scenes that they – they really jumped in and 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 did a great job. And so when COVID hit, you know, I think there was a couple hundred cases in the United States or 26 cases when I left. And then when I came back, they were shutting schools. So it, it, it changed pretty quickly. And I honestly thought that it might kill the movie. Um, and I and I mean, I knew Randall, uh, the director, Randall Emmett, is is one of the most highly motivated people I've ever met in my entire life. If he does anything, he does it to the. I mean, he's a champion poker player. He's a champion pickleball player. Anything he does, he's he's <laughs> he's, he's 49 years old and he's produced 113 movies or something. So I knew when he came out and wanted to direct, and I was so honored that he picked my script to direct. I knew it was going to get the best effort possible. So I thought, if anybody's going to keep this thing alive, it's Randall and. Um, but there was a lot of a lot of scary days there where I thought it's not going to happen. And then they went back to Puerto Rico in July and they weren't able to get started again. Uh, there was just too many hurdles and too many issues. And, um, you know, they were testing every day, but still. So I thought, that's it. When they came back and from in July, I said, that's it. And it was really emotional. I thought, man, I really allowed myself to think that this was going to happen. And then I got a call from Randall. He's like, do you want to come up to Santa Barbara? We're going to start shooting again in two weeks. And I was like, what? And they, <laughs> they, they found a ranch and they had just adapted. And they did, I think, a week, two weeks of prep and just had the hardest working crew. Everybody was meticulous about COVID regulations, testing constantly. And, um, and, and this, this ranch was almost like a, an old Hollywood set like or you know, studio, you know, back lot. I mean, it had different buildings and old things and it was perfect. And so they got it done and, uh, that's that. And so they've been in post-production and I believe, uh, it's a little bit 
you know, kept under wraps, but I believe they're thinking this summer. Excellent. Excellent. And I just want to clarify, you said that they were back in production after the first shutdown in July. They tried. Yeah. And that was a year after you got the call that they wanted to do, that EFO <laughs> wanted to do it, which is exactly what they said, right? Yeah. It, is it, that it, true? Yeah. You know, it, it's, it, that's it's amazing. Funny. It's amazing. It really is. Well, we started in March, which was well under a year. But when we started in March, I was, I was having a conversation with one of the producers and I said, I think this is almost exactly a year from when I finished this, this draft. And, and it's, it was amazing to think as an unproduced screenwriter that I was so fortunate and so lucky enough to go from finishing. As a produced screenwriter, you would be lucky to have that experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's fast. Well, I know. Man. I've had people tell me three years is fast. And so um, it was, it was just so fortunate. And, and, and it was, again, I think it's a, it's a true, it, it's a, to, to circle it back to, emerging writers and and people that that kind of get down in the dumps at times which is very very easy to do in this business it's just that one person it's that one group of people that are searching for something that fits right into their niche and their model and 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 when they find it then it can go and and that's why i think the rejection is is all part of it and it's they're just not it doesn't mean you're a terrible writer it means they're not your group of people that that you need to run with and um i think i was lucky enough to click with them but again it was great to have the tools to allow me to get in front of the most people to find my people (laughs) i just I, i wanted to bring it up when you were talking but the story was great i didn't want to stop for it but um you had you had submitted on on VPF in uh, you said May um, midnight in the switchgrass yeah and you got the call from uh, EFO EFO yep EFO you got the call from them in late July so it was two two and a half months that it took them to read the script and and they had already it had already run through the company and and they yeah. had made that decision so. You know, just because you don't hear in the, you know, in the next, you know, week or a month or whatever, you know, sometimes it helps to follow up, you know, just a little email. Hey, how's everything going? But everything takes longer than it takes, as a friend of mine says. Yeah, no, it's definitely it's it's always it's always on somebody's list. And and I think a lot of executives and, and reps they're really good about it, you know, especially since the doors, the internet has kind of opened the doors a little bit more and, and people realize that you can get great scripts through um, other channels. I think they don't want to burn bridges either. So, you know, you, you have an executive, they will put, if they're going to request the script, they wholeheartedly expect for you to follow up and then they can either choose to communicate with you or not, but it's probably on their list. Whether they ever get to it is just a, a, a testament to what they've got going on. Um, but I mean, I, I think it's fine to follow up and and you know give it a give it a month, follow up and just say just want to make sure see if this is still on your radar if or if I should just uh, just you know not 
right. count on ever hearing from you. <laughs> and, um, and I think a lot of people would get back to you and say, it's still on my list or not. And then if they don't, I mean, as some people say, no response is a no. And then right. you can just, you know, file that away and keep, I, I think us writers can keep that in the back of our mind too. And, and as I said, I, I don't think it's a one-way street where I think executives can, can burn bridges too by not, not treating everybody with the same respect that they want to be treated themselves. So um, but right. again, that might be. And sometimes they change companies and the email yep. address that you sent the script to, it's just sitting in there. And then that, you know, you're rattling that cage might, you know, the new executive might go, what, what was this? And then yeah. follow up on I mean, the email it, chain and go, yeah, this sounds interesting. Let me read it. Yeah. I, I, I know a gentleman who had John Wick sitting on his desk for months and he kept meaning to get to it, kept meaning to get to it. And then I think Basil and his guys <laughs> got to it first and they snatched it up. But that just goes to tell you that, you know, they hear those stories too. And they have to believe that, that the next John Wick could be that query that they just got from somebody from Virtual Pitch Fest. And right. they need to treat it with that same respect. Otherwise, they're, they're not going to find those, those diamonds in the rough. Right. It could be coming from some guy with a British passport in Colorado. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe. <laughs> we'll see. That's fantastic. I thought, I thought you were out here when all of that happened. Um, no. I didn't realize you were still, you were still in the, in the wilds of Colorado. Probably not uh, the wilds. You were probably living in Denver. Or nice it was, yeah. I mean, it was the, the wilds of Denver, but it's uh, it was kind of the deal. My wife and I, she, her business is, is based out of Colorado. So she would kind of be commuting. Um, she's got a big team there. And so it would work, um, but we weren't sure how it would work. And, but we always thought we'll cross that bridge when you get something going. And honestly, I didn't know if that was ever going to happen. I mean, I didn't think I was going to stop ever, but I thought it might just always be my really passionate hobby. Now I had quit my job and focused on it full time. So <laughs> That was again something that I was was very fortunate that um, my wife was was able to allow me to do and support me with, but I don't know if that would have lasted forever. And so, um, you know, if when I got something going, you know, we thought we would make our way out here because I was flying back and forth quite a bit, um, and we but we always wanted to we always wanted to live on the coast, and and so we uh, COVID opened the door to the idea that that my wife didn't have to be in the office every day and that she could, they could achieve. They've, they, and, and as, as crazy as it sounds, they've, they've, they've had the most productive year they've ever had. Um, everybody remote, it's just the real estate and it's just everything kind of the perfect storm. But she realized that she could work remotely at least part of the time. So we, we took the plunge. That's great. Well, that's a fascinating story. I'm, uh, and and very inspiring. It makes me want to. I, I wish I didn't have twelve other things to do today. I'd sit down and get a couple more hours in of writing. Well, Alan, thanks so much. What's up next for you, real real quickly? Um, well, I have a another spec that I finished. That's a, another thriller that just got done, and we 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 have we have an offer on that we're kind of contemplating, and and seeing what might be next for it. We're um, we're kind of slowing down a little bit because for a, for a time there, I thought I might direct a, a short of that script. To, it's like, almost like a proof of concept. So we're kind of trying to figure out because directing is something I want to do whenever 
um, I get the opportunity for that. Um, so I've got that. Um, uh, EFO actually was great. They hired me to to um, write some 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 great action movies, shoot 'em up action movies for them um, that I'm in the middle of right now that that sound like they might film next year. And um, this television project with this producer Eric that I met through Virtual Pitch Fest, um, we we have some incredible people working on it with us, and I'm really hoping that it, that it, it it clicks with somebody you know coming up when people when the industry opens up here again in a few weeks. That's fantastic. Well, I I look forward to seeing the movie, and uh, it sounds like I I mean it's set in Florida, right? It is. It's set in Florida, and yeah. And, yeah, and so please, if your wife reviews it, please ask her to take it easy. <laughs> Remind her that it was a, well, a, wet, a wet behind the ears first time screenwriter. Well, I also it's not a Western. So that's those are the those are the the, the reviews that she gets death threats over. Um, <laughs> no. She honestly did gods and monsters, no, gods and generals. That's what yep. it was. Gods and generals. She oh, my gosh, she she's not a big Western fan to begin with, but. Yeah, she had she had people literally death threats. People people were not happy with her. But anyway, uh, she will. I'm I'm sure she'll she'll look forward to it because she's a Florida girl. So yeah, yeah, great. Uh, All right, man. Well, well, thanks again. Our thanks again to Alan and also our sponsor, ScreenCraft. Uh, Thanks again for listening and keep writing.